This podcast is part of the Garnet Media Group Podcast Network. Garnet Media Group is a partnership between the student-run media outlets at the University of South Carolina. For more information and to see more student work, visit garnetmedia.org. Hey guys, welcome to Adventures Beyond the Coop, the podcast where we hear from former and current Gamecocks who've done something a little wild. I'm your host, Chloe Barlow. If you like going on adventures, getting outside, or just want to hear a good story, you're in luck. This is the podcast where we know sometimes you have to get lost to find yourself. Welcome back, y'all. As we're approaching the next whirlwind few weeks of exams, summer break, and for some, graduation, I thought we all might be in need of some guidance. On this episode, we hear from Dr. Patrick Hickey. Dr. Hickey recently retired after working with USC for 15 years. He was recognized as a distinguished clinical professor emeritus, and he served as the faculty principal for the Capstone Scholars Program. Beyond his work in the classroom, Dr. Hickey is a world traveler of the highest order. So far, he has been to 88 countries and all seven continents. At 67, he has no plans to stop anytime soon. As if traveling the world with his lovely wife, Carol, wasn't enough, Dr. Hickey became the first nurse to ever climb the seven summits on his first attempt. That's right, Dr. Hickey climbed Mount Everest. As you might expect, he's become quite the wealth of wisdom. In this episode, he speaks about developing cultural competency, the importance of finding a mentor, and following your passion. If you listen to one episode all the way through, let it be this one. You know, I've been very privileged uh, to travel the world. I mean, at this point, 88 countries of, of travel. And I know a lot of students or people will never be able to do what I've done. So I look upon it as an opportunity for me to share what I've learned from other countries. So when I hear people being very prejudiced and speaking about Jewish people, you know, I can relate back to my experiences of traveling extensively in Israel and say, well, hey, have you ever met a Jewish person? Let me tell you what it's really like in their country. This is why they're experiencing what they're experiencing. Do you know the history of the Holocaust? You know, those, those kind of things. So um, I think we do a great service to our students to develop more uh, cultural competencies and, and opportunities to learn. Anyways, I'll get off that soapbox. No, no, I think honestly going going with that for a second, um, I think it can be hard when you're in public school being brought up, you know, everybody teaches it differently. But I think when you get to college, you kind of take it upon yourself. It's your responsibility as a student and as a citizen of the world to learn those things. So I'm, I'm just curious, how would you say students can improve their cultural competency specifically at Carolina? How can they, sorry, how can they what? Improve their cultural competency, grow that. Yeah, by doing as you suggested, uh, seeking out courses that will help them to expand their horizons, uh, seeking out opportunities to uh, connect uh, with other students on campus. For example, um, I apologize, uh, what's the name of the living learning community uh, where ha- we have the international house. I think it's in Maxi, isn't it? Maxi, Maxi. Yeah, yeah yes. the international house is a perfect example where students could go over and they have French night, they have Spanish night, they have cooking nights. I mean, we have all that in our backyard. It's just a matter of promoting it to students and putting it on their horizons. And, and then, <clears throat> excuse me, I think more importantly, 
helping to impress how important it is. I mean, you know, I've worked predominantly with pre-med kids for the last 10 to 15 years. You know, I'm, I'm nursing faculty, but, but I, I found a niche and I love working with healthcare kids. I see way too many kids checking the box. I'm going to check the box, you know, and you can relate to this getting into college. I mean, a lot of kids coming into college check the proverbial box. I did X number of hours of service. I did this. I did that. That's that checking the box mentality. We got to get people away from checking the box mentality into a thought process where, hey, this is really going to help me. This is really going to help me to be a more global person. No matter what job you're pursuing in the future, if you have develop cultural competencies, that's going to put you in a better light than other people that are applying for those positions. But unfortunately, our students don't hear that message and they don't realize that. So it takes, it takes a bigger message uh, from on top, uh, so to speak, to uh, try to ingrain in, in every program and in, in every curriculum something to do with cultural competencies. But again, we have a plethora of opportunities on USC campus. You don't even have to go internationally. Again, go to Maxi, uh, you know, go to the Russell House and look around you and see all the different groups. I mean, go to the Garnet Gate and look at all the student organizations that are out there. Oh my God, there are so many. And you can just go, and I've encouraged students over the years to do this, go to a student organization that intrigues you and there's so many international student organizations out there. I just go. I mean, there's you can learn how to salsa. You can learn another language. Um, you can learn a lot of different things. I remember at one of the student org fairs, there was somebody at one of the tables years and years ago. He was from Palestine, and he was promoting information. And there's a huge conflict, as you know, between the uh, Israelis and Palestinians. And it was just, it was very enlightening to listen to him. And and. I think the challenge we have in, in our society right now, unfortunately, is just, you know, I hate to bring it up, but everything's way too political. If you don't agree with me, there's something wrong with you, you know, and we can't even have constructive criticisms or arguments or discussions anymore for fear of being shut down because we're being woke or whatever the common term is that we're going through right now. I mean, you're living and breathing that, unfortunately. Yeah, I would say one of my favorite quotes um, is by Aristotle, and it's the mark of an educated mind is being able to entertain an idea without adopting it. Yeah, of course. I mean, you, you got to listen to people. I right. Mean, if you shut people down before they even say something, but but the, there's so many lines drawn right now. And, you know, I, I think what we all need to do is just take a collective breath, let people speak, let people have their opinions. Uh, I mean, it's kind of like a, a relationship. I mean, I've been married to my wife. God, we've been together, I don't know, 40 plus years. I mean, you can't change a person to be the way you want them to be. You've got to work with them. And it's a collaboration similar to everything that's going on now. We have to be able to at least listen. But, but challenging that process is the fact that we've all been brought up in our individual homes, in our individual school communities, in our individual churches. A lot of us come to college with predetermined ideas that have been planted in us by our parents. Nothing wrong with that, but that's just normal process. You hear what you hear. You live at home with your mom and dad and your aunts and uncles and your close friends, and you adopt uh, a stand on different things. And some of those stands may not be um, um, well 
well based on, on, on historical facts. It may be just, I heard this, so I'm going to say that kind of thing. I mean, you can't deny the fact that we all learn from our families, right? Like that is the, where we get our most learning from is our upbringing. But um, interestingly enough, in a lot of the interviews I've been in recently, the question that's been shocking me, that's been coming up a lot is, tell me about one belief that you've held strongly that you have since changed your opinion on. So mm -hmm. I think that's almost a, a mark of kind of our cultural consciousness mm -hmm. shifting into that, okay, like, you have to be more educated about the world around you. You have to be more educated about cultures because we're expecting you to, to learn more about the world than just the microcosm of what you grew up with. So that's the beauty of coming to coming to college. I mean, you're, you, you maybe have grown up in small town, rural South Carolina, all of a sudden you're thrown into this big university and you got people from New York and California and Texas. So again, it goes back to that melting pot or salad bowl. We have wonderful opportunities it's just a matter of taking advantage of those opportunities. And I think when you start in college, you're, you're kind of that deer in the, deer in the headlights, you're, you're, you're blinded. There's so many things, there's sororities, there's parties, there's games, you know, there's this, that, and the other. I, my experience after 15 years at USC is, you know, sophomore, junior year, you're starting to settle down. You're starting to see vision of where you're going and what you're doing. Uh, and along the way, you make a few mistakes along the way, you may not have picked the best of friends along the way, you you navigate and, and that's the challenge that that all the students are going through. My biggest recommendations to all the students is find a faculty mentor, you know, find someone that you can trust. I mean, mom and dad, you trust, obviously, because they brought you up, but mom and dad may be in upstate New York, or they may be in Texas, find someone that you can sit down with and discuss your issues and your challenges. Um, I mean, as faculty principal for Capstone for 10 years, I developed unbelievable relationships with my students to where I would meet with students every semester. I mean, standard every semester, you know, students would meet with me, we'd put on my schedule, I'd meet with them. Then I'm leaving the office at, at five or six and there's a knock on the door and then, you know, Dr. Hickey, are you there? You know, can I come in for a minute? And you know, so it, it's not a nine to five job, and unfortunately, making yourself available to students, but every student needs to to develop that relationship. And, and it's really sad for me to think that there are students graduating from USC that have never taken the opportunity to sit down with a faculty member and get to know them. I mean, all of us, all of us want students to succeed. All of us want students to go on and, and develop great lives and, and being in healthcare, I want to open doors of opportunities for students. I want you to get a job in a hospital, work in a clinic. So why would I not want to get to know you? Why would I not want to help you to get a job? You know, I'm not there just to teach a class and have you pass a test. I'm there to be a part of your life and, and pay it forward. And then hopefully you'll learn that from me. And then you too, in your own way, will pay it forward when you get to that point in life. Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm so grateful that I've found a mentor and one of my professors, she's amazing. But I think sometimes, you know, I didn't find that until my junior year. Being a freshman, being a sophomore, it can be really intimidating to go up to your professors and say, hey, like, my name's Chloe, what can I talk to? Can I talk to you? So how would you suggest students approach that? Well, the, the challenge is, and, and, and I hate to be sexist, but sometimes young ladies feel uncomfortable going to a male professor. So I say, I mean, number one, you shouldn't. Uh, number two, you're paying a heck of a lot of money to be there. Uh, 
But number three, I understand the reality of it. I mean, I understand that 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 difference. And, and I say, take a couple friends with you. You know, go go with a couple other people. I, I know COVID's kind of thrown a wrench into that process of getting to know your faculty. Some faculty, understandably, may not feel as comfortable face to face. I know we're slowly changing the rules on on wearing masks, etc. But, but it does take a lot, and, and I, I respect that, that as an 18 or 19 year old, you may not at that point in time have the skill sets to have what I call adult conversations. Um, uh, so it does take a lot, but you know, if, you, if you are intimidated, go with other people, you know, go with another friend, you know, take advantage of the take a professor at the lunch program. I mean, they still have that. And <laughs> this, is, this is kind of a funny story, but I didn't know about it when I started at USC. And my wife used to always tease me because I'm nursing faculty and predominantly the good number of my students are female. And my wife always chastised me, now be careful that the students, you know, don't, don't aren't attracted to you. And I said, Carol, I'm like everyone's grandfather. There's no <laughs> way. So at one point, this was years ago, years and years ago, um, one of my students came up and said, Dr. Hickey, can I take you to lunch? And I came home that day and I told my wife, I said, Carol, it's happening. And she said, it's happening. What do you mean? I said, it's happening. I said, a girl asked, asked me out to lunch. She said, what did you do to her? And I said, nothing at all. She said, well, what are you going to do? And I said, oh, I'm going to have to let her down somehow. So I went to lunch with her the next day, wore a nice shirt. And I'm in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, this poor thing, you know, she's got a crush on me. We got to the cash register and she pulled out a coupon and I said, what is that coupon? She said, oh, we have to take a teacher to lunch. It's part of our course. So <laughs> she dropped me like a sack of potatoes. But, but, but I share that story because I've gone to lunch with so many students over the years and it's usually a couple, two, three kids. And what a difference that makes in a student's life. And you've shared that you've got a good relationship. I wish that same relationship that you have for everybody. I Me wish too. every student would find it. It may not work freshman year, it may not work sophomore year, but as you start to mature and you feel comfortable, go out of your way. And that, that's that personal challenge in Capstone. You know, get out of your comfort zone. You know, with all these kids, as I said earlier, that are working on pre-med, they have to get really strong letters of support from faculty. And you can't wait until you're a senior and go up to somebody. It's already too late. You've got to develop that relationship from day number one. So that take a faculty person to lunch is a perfect way uh, to, to do that. Yeah, just going back to encouraging students if they're uncomfortable, take a friend with them. But I, I would put that out as a, as a number one goal for every student. Find a faculty mentor that's got your back that can give you great uh, life, life experiences and, and life knowledge. I mean, you're going to get great advisement from your advisors, but from your faculty mentors, you'll get more of a life uh, advisement, which, which I think is important. That, that's got to start right away. Day number yeah, one. I completely agree. And I think it helps when you get deeper into your major and you get into those uh, higher level courses and they're smaller and you're more, uh, specialized in what you're doing you can kind of find those relationships with those professors easier because they've seen you for a little bit at least in my experience so I, I shared that i've done nine years of of service learning medical mission trips it, it's considered or called experiential learning hands-on learning i mean when you sit on your butt in a classroom that blood goes to your butt and you zone out in what 15 or 20 minutes i, I we all understand that i always get my students to stand up and move around 
but you know, when you can do things in an environment with a faculty member where you're working together outside the classroom setting, that's huge. And I know not everybody has that opportunity, but through doing this, I've discovered that so many students are so unsure of what they want to do in the future. So as you sit in my class and I preach and I do my lectures, I'm thinking that all of you kind of sort of know what you want to do. But in reality, even you know, sophomores, juniors, seniors, there's a great disillusionment with where you're going. And if you just sit in class and get lectures and take tests, that's not going to help you to figure out where you're going. Right. So the more that you can do to try to tip your toe in the water of what your future profession is going to be, for example, in journalism, get out there and actually start interviewing, doing podcasts. Hey, this is kind of cool. This is what my future is going to be like. But if you just go to class and, and, and get a, a 4.0 and, and don't get involved and don't do anything, there's going to be a sad realization when you get out in the work world that this isn't what you envisioned, or maybe you didn't even know what to envision. So the beauty for me is being able to take students and while we're in country or doing the experiential process, students develop a comfort level and then they share their disillusionment. Like, you know, I, 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 I kind of don't know if I could see myself doing this. You know, I don't know what other options are out there. And it's really hard for a student to share that, but as faculty being able to help them to address those fears, that's critical. That's a very critical phase of a student faculty relationship when the student opens up about their disillusionment of what they want to do or not knowing what they want to do. That faculty member needs to be prepared then to be able to help them know the resources on campus. Um, know the career center, know the other agencies. And then as you indicated, as you're further along in your major, being able to bring your own experience as a faculty member into light. And, you know, I share that with students all the time, especially in healthcare, a lot of kids get disillusioned by looking at Grey's Anatomy and all these other shows that don't really realistically show what we do in the healthcare setting. Uh, and then I bring in, well, you know, guys, you know, I hate to bring this up, but, you know, in healthcare, we deal with death, dying, pain, and suffering. And, and that's the reality of it. So I kind of take the rose-colored glasses off and, and I talk to them about it. Also in healthcare, depending, especially in nursing, you may not have control of your schedule. Someone else is going to say you're working an eight-hour shift or a 12-hour shift, and that shift may be on Thanksgiving. It may be on your birthday. It may be on your wedding anniversary. So those are things that if you don't get out there and ask the questions, you're not going to know until you get into the work environment. Yeah. How would you say your own path was from when you were in college and you just graduated to what you ended up doing with your career? Um, I was I was similar uh, to, to everybody at that stage. Um, um, I went to college in Canada. Um, I, I didn't even choose nursing. Um, I wrote a book, a book about my experience uh, after my seven summits and I uh, went out and did the international um, speaking circuit, but I share with audiences that someone else saw something in me that I didn't see myself. Um, someone else, it was actually a guidance counselor in high school. Uh, I went to her in high school and I said, Mrs. Lamb, I said, I don't know what I want to do when I grow up. And uh, she suggested three things. She didn't do an aptitude test. She just looked at me, small country high school. She said, Patrick, I could see you... Um, uh, working in a, in, in a prison setting. I said, oh my God, where did you get that? I said, 
I've always had fears of being locked up. That's not going to work. Then she said, I could see you working uh, with children. And I was the oldest of nine kids, eight boys and one girl. I said, no, 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 can't do that. Don't like kids. And then she looked at me. She said, you know, I think you'd make a great nurse. And this was uh, 40 plus years ago when at that time in life, I think maybe less than 1% of nurses were male. I was kind of insulted when she said that, ran out of the room, didn't say a word. Last thing I heard her say was, you know, uh, next week there's going to be a recruiter here speaking about nursing. Didn't say anything to anybody, snuck in the back of that room. Of course, it was all girls. And that recruiter said three words that changed my whole life. I'll never forget. He said, nurses save lives. You know, at that point in life, we didn't have, you know, Grey's Anatomy and all those shows. I think it was black and white. I hate to share. Uh, and it was only doctor shows. I thought doctors save lives. So I remember coming home and sharing with my mom. I said, mom, I think I'm going to be a nurse. And I remember her saying, that's as close to godliness as you will get. Uh, you know, the good Catholic woman that she was. Uh, my dad disowned me. He was very embarrassed that his son would be a nurse because very few men, if any, at that point in life were nursing. But, you know, when I graduated from my nursing uh, program in Canada, I moved to, to South Texas uh, to work as a nurse. And I realized at that time that more education would help me to save more lives because I was working in a trauma center in South Texas and it was stabbings and shootings, explosions, fires, a lot of people dying. And we were what we call a level one trauma center where the worst of the worst of the worst were brought. It means you had to be on top of your toes. You had to know your, you had to have the skill sets, but part of the skill sets were more education. So I went back to school to, to work on my education. I worked on my baccalaureate nursing, which is your four-year nursing degree. And that was what I did in Texas. Then after moving here, of course, I went back to school and um, worked on a couple of masters and, and a doctorate. But when I first got out of nursing school, I, I was you know, disillusioned myself um, uh, because I wanted to help people. You know, I always tell people that I'm twice cursed. I'm Catholic and I'm a nurse. And in my book, what that means to me is I feel like I have to help everybody and I can't say no. So because of that mindset and because of my 110% work ethic, I jumped into work with a fervor that caused me to be a workaholic, but unfortunately developed a very tough exterior because in, in healthcare, when you do deal with the death and dying, pain and suffering, you can't let everything get to you. So it was kind of like I wanted to help as much as I could, but I had to shelter myself from the pain and suffering. So it, it, it was a real challenge, but it helped me to grow up. It helped me to mature. Uh, it helped me to realize that life is short. It helped me to, to know, and that's the way I am today. I mean, you know, I mean, I can't tell you how many times a day I, I tell my wife I love her. Um, you know, it, it's a gift to have uh, a significant other. Um, every day is precious. I mean, having been in nursing for over 40 years now, um, and having done nine years of medical mission trips to Latin America, I'm very gracious for what I have. Um, if I die tomorrow, and I'm, I'm knocking on wood on my table here, if I die tomorrow, I've led a good life. I've made a, a great difference in other people's lives, uh, and, and I'm happy. Um, but I've worked hard at that, and I've matured over the years. And um, I think reflecting back on, on, on my life at age 67, 
I think probably the, the last 15 years at USC were probably the best years of my life because of the opportunity I had to transfer what I've learned in life to students so that they too can expand their horizons and, and try to look at life differently. Because I, I think that's what it's all about. I love taking blinders off people and exposing them to the bigger world. Yeah. Uh, and, and people may not be able to travel, but, but they should be open to at least uh, being receptive. I mean, with, with what's going on with Ukraine right now, for example, I mean, contributing to, to the relief of Ukraine, uh, uh, looking at, at keeping up with the news. Oh my God, I mean, you're in journalism. I mean, I tell my nursing students and my healthcare students, you've gotta be on top of your politics all the time because you don't want someone telling you what to do in your profession that isn't aware of what you do in your profession. So you, you've always got to, you know, you know, whether you're Republican or Democrat or, or whatever the case, and again, going back to the lines that are drawn in politics, not getting too political, you, you always have to be very knowledgeable what you're doing. In fact, when Carol and I traveled, we always carried a little radio with us and we always listened to the BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation when we traveled, because we never knew from one day to the next whether a coup was going to occur in the country that we were in. And we were in some very unstable countries at different times. I mean, we were in China just before the Tiananmen Square disaster, which you've probably never heard of. No, uh, no, I have. <laughs> have you? Okay, sorry, I apologize. Um, but we, we've been in so many countries in, in El Salvador, Nicaragua, and places where wars were going on and we were under the radar. So we had to always be aware of world politics. And one thing I like to pride myself on is being able to have a conversation with anybody and everyone about anything going on in the world at any time. And, and that's what we got from being world travelers. And that's what I want my students to have that same worldly vision. Be aware of what's going on in Ukraine. Be aware of what's going on in Australia. You know, don't be so focused just on the United States. I mean, understand what's going on in your country, but expand your horizons. And, and when you start to learn more about these other countries, then you're more accepting of those people. Then maybe you want to go to those places and see them. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm sure you weren't born with this, such a worldly view. So how did you cultivate it? How did you get into traveling the world? Yeah, it's kind of a funny story. I'm glad you asked. Um, um, uh, it was all through school. Uh, I went to a small country high school in Canada and my geography teacher just made the world sound so exciting. I mean, I, I never thought I was going to amount to anything. I was kind of an ugly duckling growing up and, you know, nine kids, dad worked two jobs. I mean, we got hand-me-downs. We we're really dirt poor. So I really had no no visions of, of anything. I, I didn't even think I'd go to college. Um, and when this geography teacher made the world come alive, I was really excited about it. And um, when I moved then, I went on my first international trip in high school. I went to Greece on a high school trip. You know, that got me really excited. So I worked two or three jobs to pay for that trip. Then when I moved to Texas, after I graduated from nursing and met my, my future wife, Carol, it was over a romantic meal one night and maybe a little bit too much wine uh, that Carol suggested maybe we should go travel. And I thought she said maybe we should go for a vacation. 
And when I pushed her a little bit more on what she meant, she meant, let's go travel for a year. Um, she had been a foreign exchange student. She had lived in uh, Norway for a year. Uh, she was from a small farming town like I was. She's from South Dakota. I'm from Canada. We both grew up on farms. Um, so together, we started to learn about international travel. We started planning. And six months after she made that suggestion, we had packed all of our furniture. Uh, we had paid all our bills. We had put money aside. And back then, this was 1984, we didn't have the internet. So we had to arrange for family to send us letters at mail drops all over the world. So you can go anywhere in the world right now and you can say, you can send a letter to me, Patrick Hickey, Post Restante, um, um, Sydney, Australia. Patrick Hickey, Post Restante, Sydney, Australia. I can walk into that post office with my passport and there's a post restante area and they will hold that mail for three months and I get a letter. So that's how we got mail from home. So we would just give estimates of mail drops all over the world. We would just pick a city, post restante, our name, we'd go in, there'd be a bundle of mail and that was the best news because we didn't call. Calling was a challenge. Uh, we'd call home once a month. Um, there was no internet at the times. Now travel is so easy. I mean, you can you can text and you can email. I mean, we would sometimes have to, we'd stay in youth hostels where you'd have to get there uh, early in the morning to get a room that afternoon, or we'd stay in dorms. You know, depending upon where we were. So when we backpacked um, around the world, well, 1984 was our first experience. We backpacked around Europe for a year. Uh, URL pass, youth hostels, uh, pensions. Uh, never booked a room in advance. We always just get a room the day of. Uh, and there were books that would help us. There's, there's kind of Bibles for backpackers, depending upon where you're at, what country and, and what continent. But when we did that in Europe, we met so many people that were traveling around the world for a whole year. We thought, wow, that's kind of exciting. So this was 84. We came back and we made our plans. Subsequently in 88, we quit our jobs again, put everything in storage, and we went around the whole world for a year. So we booked round-the-world airline tickets, which you can still do, which aren't promoted, but every airline has them. Our partnership was with Qantas and Northwest Airlines, and you had to go one direction, and we went west. So I had to map out the ticket. It was $2,000 in 1988 to go around the world for a year. I had 25 stops on the ticket. I didn't even use a bunch of the tickets because we would go overland, but we would, on the plane, we'd go from Sydney, Australia to Tokyo, Japan. We'd have a nice meal. As soon as we got off the plane, we we're totally on our own. We had to know the currency. We had to know where we we're staying. We had to know how to get there from A to B. Um, so, um, so we did that in, in uh, 88, traveled the whole world for a year. And um, that got us really excited about doing another year-long trip. And then in 93, again, we quit our jobs, took a Greyhound bus from Columbia, South Carolina to the border of Mexico, and then took us a whole year to get to the tip of South America. So along the way, after 88 countries of travel, seven continents, uh, we've accrued unbelievable experiences. And part of retirement was to go and do the same thing again. Uh, COVID, unfortunately, uh, has put that on, on, on the back burner, uh, but we're already making plans. Um, um, 
my wife's a very avid tennis fan. So uh, we're planning on revisiting some of the places we've been before, Sydney, Australia, I mean, uh, Brisbane for the, you know, Australian Open, you know, Paris again for the French Open, London for Wimbledon. So we'll be going to a lot of those places, but we do want to go and, and do what we call backcountry hiking. Um, Carol hiked, my wife's name is Carol. She hiked into Mount Everest base camp with me on my 10 year anniversary. And it was so fun for me to share where I had lived for almost three months of my life. But every turn of the trail, I remembered something. So we like backpacking. We like just putting backpacks on a sleeping bag and going out and roughing it. Although at our age, the ground's probably a little harder. So our air mattresses will have to be a little thicker. Uh, but that's, that's the beauty of being able to just, you know, lock your door and, and go travel now. And, and we've, worked, we've worked hard to be able to do that. Uh, now we're excited to be able to do that. So we're, we're making active plans. But the adventure in me came from a teacher in high school. I met his wife, who was another teacher years later, and I shared the same story with her that it was because of her husband that I've traveled 88 countries around the world. And she said, have you told him? I said, no, I never have. So I went up and I told him, and I'm sure that made his day. Um, and now having been a teacher for 15 years at USC, it's always exciting for me to hear from students, Dr. Hickey, was your passion for this? Or was that trip? Or it was this, that, or the other, or our conversation that helped me to see where I want to go. And, and I'm very thankful for that. So it's, it's kind of gone full circle now. Your passion is certainly, um, I feel like I can catch it. You know what I mean? Um, infectious is the word I was going to go for. Uh, that's incredible. That's the way I teach, actually. You know, I, I'm, I'm kind of a storyteller. I, I think students learn a lot more about a certain scenarios or topics if you can relate your own experiences there. And when I wrote my book, I kind of had to put myself out there. You know, when, when you write a book, and my book is Seven Summits, A Nurse's Quest to Conquer Mountaineering in Life, all the money from the book goes to my scholarships. So I've endowed four scholarships to help students. My wife and I never had kids by choice. Um, my USC students have been my kids for 15 years. Um, but when, when I wrote the book and I saw the opportunity to raise money, um, I thought, why not? Um, so um, the book, the chapters, uh, if you get a chance to look at them would, would intrigue you. You know, I talk about legacy. Um, uh, I talk about uh, leadership. Uh, I talk about a lot of different attitude, having a positive attitude. So going back to an infectious personality, you know, it's actually much easier to smile than it is to frown. Um, I'd rather err on the side of helping people than not helping people. And I think we all role model, you know, when I do this, when I get up in front of class, when I go out on my way to do the medical mission trips, when I do all these other things, kids see that, I believe, and they see that that's a little extra effort. But I hope that they adopt it because even yourself, Chloe, as you're growing in school and as you're working through journalism and the networks, you're going to see some personalities that you really like and you're going to adopt some of those things for who you you are, who you are right now. But who you're going to be five years from now is greatly going to depend on the people you meet in the next five years and the experiences you have. And there's nothing wrong with that. We're all chameleons. I mean, pick the good things that you see in people and make them a part of you. The bad things you see in people, don't, don't pick those things. You know, it's kind of like when I'm, when I'm with somebody, I'm a toucher. I always reach out and I touch a shoulder. I make human contact with people. It's not grabby, touchy-feely kind of thing. It's just, I put my hand on a shoulder. How are you doing today? 
and they smile and I smile back. You know, it's, it's those little things, body movements, and especially for you in journalism, you're going to learn that a lot. And I'm sure you've already learned a lot. You know, someone's standing there, you know, hovering over you with their arms crossed, looking down at you. That makes you feel uncomfortable as opposed to them pulling a chair up and looking at you eye to eye. So the role modeling is important. And I think from my perspective, at least, students need more role models. Students need more mentors. Students are challenged. In fact, on my trip to Guatemala in March of this year, one thing that stood out amongst my students when they were interviewing the patients was a lot of the patients had mental health issues. A lot of the patients had depression, had anxiety, and, and they've never seen this before. And I think it kind of struck a nerve with my students because a lot of my students are going through the same things. And they identified something in that patient that they too were going through. And they knew that we had more resources to deal with it. And they knew that, that these people didn't have the resources. So they felt bad about that. And they tried to do as much as they could to, to help them to manage the issues and the challenges. Um, you know, life, life's a challenge every day, you know, and, and, and again, going back to the mentor thing, if you have good mentors and don't have just one, have a multitude of people that you can bounce things off. You know, I, I love helping students with resumes. You know, I said, hey, don't use just me. Let me tweak your resume, send it to somebody else, or let me tell you about the perspective job in this, and then go speak to another couple other people, and then have a, a better idea of where you're going. Because if you do just have one mentor, you know, maybe, maybe that person's very narrow-minded, but if you have a couple of different people that you feel that you trust, you know, of course, mom and dad are there and aunts and uncles are there, but on campus, you know, take advantage of other people. Absolutely. So the traveling bug that I have that you uh, brought up, um, I, I wanted to uh, um, share that with my students. And that's why I developed my service learning trip um, over 10 years ago. And the beauty for me has been uh, taking students to underdeveloped countries and, and exposing them to less than favorable conditions. Um, I mean, I loved it so much that I came out of retirement to teach it this past, uh, uh, this semester, uh, because I see the effect it has on students. So, so my wish again for every student is, if you can take advantage of a study abroad opportunity, if you can learn another language, if you can develop cultural competencies, no matter what profession you're going into, it's going to help you somewhere down the road. That's the way I look at it. Do as much as you can in the short time that you're here. Every day is a gift. There's no guarantees. I hate to be negative on that, but you know, every day is a blessing. <laughs> I mean, heaven forbid, we don't know what's gonna happen. So I've always felt that I'm a generalist in everything and a specialist in very few things. So I always, and that was one of my prides in Capstone was making students very well balanced. That's the name of the game get that resume going, put a lot of stuff on the resume, show that you've been a member of student organization, show that you've been a leader, show that you've done service, study abroad if you can, get involved in research, go to things that stimulate you and put all that on the resume and don't obsess about your GPA. I'm not saying don't do well, do as well as you can because I was never an A student. I mean, I was a lower C student. I'd Barely, barely got out of nursing school. But when I went to grad school, everything was A's in grad school, but I was very immature. A lot of kids are at that age. I didn't, I, I didn't have the skill sets to, to get the A's. 
but for the students that do have that opportunity, if you are an A student and you're a 4.0, that tells me you've got good organization, good communication, uh, time management skills, which means you can add more to your plate. <laughs> you can start doing more things now. So, you know, again, when you graduate, very few employers are going to care about your GPA. I mean, it's a personal thing for a lot of people. I, I totally understand. I would rather see you having, you know, three, five, and then a lot of other things on your resume than just graduating with a 4.0 and, and nothing else because you're, you're hurting yourself because what the employment world wants is workable skill sets. So if you've worked a job, if you've been a waiter, waitress, server, whatever along the way, and went to school and we're student orgs and we're leadership and we're in Greek and, and, and that equates to what the employment world wants. Yeah. So in our last 15 minutes or so yeah. here, I would love to talk about your experience climbing the seven summits. Yeah, so that started with a, uh, my wife and I, as I, I told you earlier, we we're avid backpackers. We used to backpack all over the United States and, and Canada and all over the world, you know, Australia, New Zealand, you know, the Himalayas. Um, but it was in, um, there was an article we read in a magazine, it was called Outside Magazine. And, and, and the article I was reading said that Beck Weathers, a physician, would not be able to complete the seven summits because he lost his vision on Mount Everest. And Beck was a physician, a pathologist from Houston, Texas, that was trying to do the seven summits. And at that time in life, very few of us knew what the seven summits were. And I didn't know what they were until I read the article. And the article, the seven summits were the highest mountain on each continent of the world. And at that time, when I read the article, it had not been climbed by that many people. It was a Canadian and an American that had done it for the very first time. And I'm Canadian and I'm an American. So I thought, this is kind of weird and kind of interesting. So for some unknown reason, I turned to my wife, I said, Carol, I think I'm gonna climb the seven summits. So I started doing my research. I started going uh, out west to Colorado and, and other areas to get mountaineering experience. Um, did a lot of training and then started down that road. So I was an independent mountain climber for seven years. I would join groups of people that I didn't know from all over the world to, in organized fashion, climb mountains. My first one was Mount Aconcagua in Argentina. That was 23,000 feet, roughly. Um, that was my first time at altitude and, and I felt the effects of it because I'd never been at altitude before, uh, but I learned a lot on that trip. Um, next after that, I think, was Mount McKinley in Alaska. And that was my first brutally, brutally cold experience. Uh, it's famous for the winds and, and the adversity there. And then went on to climb the others in Africa, Mount Kilimanjaro. My wife climbed that one with me. Uh, went to Russia, climbed Mount uh, Elbrus, Elbrus, E-L-B-R-U-S. Uh, and then went uh, Antarctica for Mount Vincent, um, Indonesia, Karstens Pyramid. Um, left Everest for the end. Um, every mountain had its own challenges. Every mountain had its own way to prepare for them. Um, and I was working full-time and going to school full-time, working on my master's, a couple of master's and a doctorate. So I juggled master's, doctorate, full-time work, full-time mountaineering, and the support of my wife and the support of my family. So it was a real challenge uh, trying to do that. And then when I successfully summited Mount Everest, 
Um, I did one a year for seven years, successfully summited everyone the first time, which was totally unusual. Most people, it takes them two or three attempts, especially on Mount Everest. Um, I became the first nurse in the world to have climbed the seven summits, uh, summiting each mountain the very first time, wrote the book about it and did the speaker circuit and, and raised a lot of money for scholarships and, and you know, was able to implement personal challenge program at USC. Um, it, it was an amazing experience and, and I've taken advantage of my experience to help pay it forward and educate a lot of other people uh, on the value of, of you know, pushing your, your extremes. Um, I mean, I did some crazy things that I never in my life ever thought I would do, um, especially on the mountains. Um, unfortunately, when you do high altitude climbing like I did, there's a lot of death and, and, and I experienced that. Um, my best friend, Sean, had died two years earlier on Mount Everest before I went. Um, I went home to Canada before I went to Mount Everest in March. And I was a realist. I knew a lot of people die. I didn't expect I was going to die, but I wanted to be prepared. So I went home to say goodbye to my family. And I met Sean's daughter. And I said, your dad started the journey up the hill. I'm going to finish it for him. So I got his ashes and I carried his ashes with me for um, almost two and a half months. And when I got to the top of the world, um, first thing I did was, you know, thank God I made it. Thank you for the support. Number two, call my wife on my satellite phone. Then number three, it was time to get Sean out of the urn. <laughs> then I was cursing my best friend because um, 40 mile an hour winds, 40 below zero. It was brutal. Your mitts are tied to your arms. If you lose a mitt, you lose a hand. So I would take the mitt off for just a 30 seconds to try and get the tape off and, and warm my hands up. And finally, I used my teeth. I got the tape off. I took the top off and it was literally just like Aladdin's lamp. I mean, the wind sucked the ashes out of that urn. It was just, it was an unbelievable moment for me to finally, in my mind, you know, have Sean rest easy that he, he made it to the top of the world. Uh, then the hard part was getting down. Uh, everybody thinks mountain climbing, it's hard getting up. It is hard getting up. The hardest part is getting down because especially on Mount Everest, you have nothing left. You know, I, I compared it to, you know, gas in your, in your tank. You, your tanks are empty. You're running on fumes. you got nothing left at all. Um, my eyes swelled up on the top. Uh, I left, lost vision in one eye until I got down as, as the edema started to, to decrease. I was able to get my vision back, but I had a Sherpa that helped me down. And, and I described a lot of it in my book. It was a very harrowing uh, day to get off the summit. Uh, but then I, I made a promise to my wife. I, I promised her that I would do the seven summits and, and I would finish it. And I got to base camp at Everest and I lined all the Sherpas up and, and I gave away my gear. I gave them everything, you know, because they put their lives on the line for us all the time and, and they have nothing. Um, so it was, um, I, w I lost my smell and my sense of taste as a result of my climbing. I, I froze the inside of my nose, unfortunately. Um, and have chronic nasal lesions and, and issues, but I would never change a thing. Um, you know, I've had friends of lost fingers and toes. Um, at the top of the world, I videotaped my friend proposing to his girlfriend. Uh, she said yes, and we got to base camp, and his, he had put an extra pair of socks on that day and cut off circulation, lost his toes. So it, it can happen so easily. Uh, but many lessons learned uh, from what I did. Um, I've I've taken advantage of, of the 
88 countries of travel, the seven summits, all the adventure travel and backpacking to, I think, in my mind, at least help plant seeds of opportunities with students to say, you know, you can do anything. I mean, I moved to the United States from Canada. I mean, you're, you're American, I'm American now too, but I always heard anybody can grow up to be the president. I thought, no, not anybody, you've got to be rich. You know, so I, I kind of tweaked that a little bit and said, anybody can climb the highest mountains in the world. All you need to do is have passion and a support system. So I, I share that with you and with all the students and anybody listening, no matter what you want to do in life, have passion for what you're doing and have a good support system that's going to get you there. You know, it may not be a straight path to get to where you want to go. There may be turns, there may be obstacles, there may be, you may have to backtrack a little bit, but you're going to get there. But if you're not passionate for where you're going and what you want to do, it's going to be more of a challenge to get to where you're going. So for you, you know, for your, your goals, your lofty goals, which I, I think are, are huge and are great goals. I mean, I, you know, before my guidance counselor suggested that I be a nurse, I wanted to be a reporter. I wanted to travel the world and do kind of sort of what you wanted to do. And then she said nursing. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, my passion for reporting did come through because I wrote for my hometown newspaper when I traveled in the countries that I traveled and I had my own byline and I had all my articles published and I have them all now in a scrapbook. So wow. it, it, it kind of came through as I wrote and did log books and diaries. Uh, so my passion did come through, but you know, I, I tell students all the time to come see me. I want you to have two things in life that I have. I love what I do and I know I'm making a difference. It's so simple. It's so simple. Love what you do and know you're making a difference. If you can look at that and, and take those pearls of wisdom, so to speak, from a 67 year old that's maybe a little light in the head because of lack of oxygen from, from being on Everest. Uh, if you look at that and look at where you're going in life, that'll help a lot. Love what you do, know you're making a difference. And one last story on, on Everest, uh, my wife, um, when, when we backpacked in the Himalayas back in 1988, we backpacked around the world for a year. We were in the Himalayas when I actually proposed to my wife. Wow. And, and uh, we just finished this trek. Sun was setting in the Himalayas, Brahma bulls laying in the street, everything was dirt, very primitive. And I said to, to my girlfriend, Carol, at the time, I said, Carol, maybe we get home, we should do something. She said, do something. I said, you know, maybe we should do something. We've been traveling six months at this time. She said, you want to have a child? I said, no, 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 no. She said, are you asking me to marry you? And I said, yes. And she said, well, say it. <laughs> so I, I got on my knee and I, I gave her a ring that I had just bartered with a Tibetan woman. I, we were near the border of Tibet and I took a pair of long john underwear out of my backpack and I gave it to a lady for a ring that she had made in her village. And that was my engagement ring to my wife. Wow. So later on, she said, well, you know, we're at altitude when you asked me that question, maybe because you didn't have enough oxygen, you weren't <laughs> thinking right. You can take that back if you wanted to. And I said, no, no, no. I actually wore that ring uh, on a chain when I summited Mount Everest, you know, very symbolic of, of our love. And I, I took our love to, to a new height. Uh, <laughs> And that's the other challenge for everyone, find a significant other. And, and you don't have to find them in college, it could be down the road, sometimes in college, it messes you up if you got other priorities. Uh, 
but finding a significant other, finding passion for what you want to do, know you're making a difference, push yourself outside your boundaries, your present boundaries, you know, take the blinders off, travel the world, you know, engage yourself with other people, keep up to date on world politics. I mean, there's so many things to do, but you know, you can do it. And, and it's just a matter of taking the time to have that vision of where you want to go and what you want to do. I don't think I could boil all of that wisdom down to one sentence if I tried, but I will. Do as much as you can in the short time you're here. Every day is a blessing. Love what you do and know you're making a difference. We had to cut it for time, but I thought it was still important to mention. In his retirement, Dr. Hickey is working towards getting his pilot's license. Though he's terrified of heights, he'll tell you he's always running towards things that scare him. He served as the faculty advisor for the Gamecock Parachuting Club and even jumped out of a plane with former President Pastides. Now he is working with an organization called Angel Flight. Pilots on their own dime fly patients to and from hospital and home. Dr. Hickey is currently serving patients down in Augusta, Georgia who require treatment at the Burn Center. As a Catholic myself, I hope it's not blasphemous to say, I have not met many people closer to sainthood than Dr. Patrick Hickey. We wish him a peaceful but never boring retirement. Safe travels, happy skies, and Godspeed. And to all the students listening, I hope you've come away feeling a little calmer about your own future. I don't know who needs to hear it, probably me, but GPA isn't everything. Even if you are about to enter your senior year, drink up all the university has to offer. And to our graduates, take the spirit of Carolina out into the world and leave your mark. That's it. I'll get off my soapbox. <laughs> this episode made me a little emotional. Oh, one last thing for me. Chase your dreams, hug a tree, but most of all, be good. See you next Friday. Before we go, our music is Bad Nostalgia by Anthem of Rain, used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Public License.